0: Well, good morning church. Good morning. Many of you know, most of you know, if you're a guest, I'm only saying this for your sake, that I own a Chick-fil-A restaurant. And um, a few months ago, I was serving a guest. I don't usually serve guests on the front counter, but this week I was, or that day I was, or not even that day, that moment I was, when a when an older gentleman, uh, he he walks into the up to the register, and I, you know, give him a standard greeting. You know, welcome to Chick Fil A. How are you? Come on, how may I serve you? And he and he stands there, just didn't exactly know what he wanted. So I I I just waited and asked him if he had any questions, and he just kept looking at the menu. And he said, I I I I'm looking for something. I'm looking for something, and he started to describe this this sandwich. He said, I'm I'm looking for this sandwich, but it's I'm not seeing it on your menu. It's the sandwich. It's 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 not the standard fried chicken sandwich that I see up there. This one actually has like kind of like the crispier breading, like you you would find on like the bone-in chicken. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, the crispy breading. You, you you follow me? You understand? Church, we get it. And, and after a while, I realized what he was looking for. I I realized. That he was actually looking for the Popeyes chicken sandwich, and so I kindly, gracefully, and humbly said, "Sir, I, I, I think you're you're looking for the Popeyes chicken sandwich." And he says, "Oh no, I'm not." See, and hit, in his mind, he was sure that chick, this was a Chick-fil-A sandwich he was looking for. He was certain. And so I, I sat there, and I, and I, I wasn't trying to, ar- trying to argue with the guy. I kind of sat there, and I was hoping he would kind of figure it out, and maybe move on, and maybe he would just choose something on the menu. But he kept pressing the issue, and he actually went as far to say, I have actually had that sandwich here in this restaurant. And I said, sir, humbly, you have not had that sandwich here in this restaurant. I said, I've been, I've been, doing, this, I've been doing this for 20 years and in fact, this is my restaurant. And we've never served such a sandwich. The sandwiches, the, the, the fried batter that we have, it, it has been the same for 50 years, bro. We, we, it just it hadn't changed. So I am not mistaken here, sir. Maybe, maybe you are mistaken. To which he said, I'm mistaken. In which he proceeds to kindly cuss me out. And I, at that point, it was my pleasure to Ask him to leave. And he left. Kicked him out. Because we don't put up with that. It's interesting. That man came in to my restaurant. He came in to Chick-fil-A that day. He was looking for Chick-fil-A. Wasn't he? In his mind, he was looking for Chick-fil-A. But his definition of what Chick-fil-A actually was, was incorrect. He wasn't looking for what Chick-fil-A offered. He was looking for Chick-fil-A on his own definition of what Chick-fil-A was based on his wisdom and his experience. Similarly, as we look throughout the the gospel of Luke, we see the Israelites, the religious leaders, looking for a Messiah. And by and large, we see this Messiah that they're looking for is, is a Messiah that isn't exactly a Messiah that the Bible is presenting. It is a Messiah that was based upon a, a God they had made up in their own mind. One that would just rescue them from Rome and, and give them earthly possessions and things of that nature. And, and, and friends, that that is not what Jesus came to do. My main point this morning is, is this. Jesus calls us to see him as he is. Jesus calls us to see him as he is and respond in joyful worship. Jesus calls us to see him as he is. Not as how we would like him to be. Not as how the culture would define him. We don't have a God of our own choosing. We don't get to choose who we... Jesus invites us to see Him as He is, as presented in the Scriptures. Not just to meditate on it, but to respond in joyful worship. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Today I'll be preaching from Luke 20.41 through 21.4. Please follow along as I read. But He, He being Jesus... Said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Perhaps you'll remember over the past few weeks, uh, the past month, that the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus before the people with, with, a, with different questions. And, and hopefully their goal at that point was to expose him as 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 a fraud or exposed him as a, a traitor to, to Rome. They're trying to get Jesus out of the picture because Jesus threatened their way of life. Threatened their religious institution. Threatened their idols. Threatened their sin. And we re- remember this, that, that Jesus, he, he handles all of their questions with ease. He just exposes them, them for the frauds that, that they are. And after Jesus handle the religious leaders' questions with ease, Jesus decides here in Luke 20, 41 to pose a question for them, doesn't he? Now, this same story, this same account that is found in Mark and in Matthew highlight that this interaction, Jesus intended this question specifically for the scribes. Okay? You might remember from last week, that the scribes were the ones who gave Jesus lip service as a as a credible teacher after he put the, the resurrection denying Sadducees in their place as they as they tried to trap him. You see, the scribes had been trying to trap Jesus all along as well. The scribes had zero respect for Jesus. And Jesus wasn't looking for their affirmation. Jesus, in this moment, as he's as he's as he's posing this question, he, he's not trying to get their... their he's, he's actually trying to expose them for the frauds that, that they are. And so he engages them in a question that he knew they would not answer. He engages them in a question he knew they could not answer. For they did not have eyes to see. Now, as we consider this passage of Scripture, one of the most understood attributes of the Messiah was that he would be a descendant of David. Yet, Jesus poses an interesting question to the scribes here in Luke 20 that requires them to do a little thinking. He asked them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? That's the question. Well, upon hearing the first part of the question, these wise and smart in their own eyes, intelligent, biblically literate religious leaders, they they might chuckle. (laughs) It's easy. They might laugh and say, well, Jesus, because the scriptures overwhelmingly point to this fact. Why ask such a question? For instance, Jesus, did you not read in Isaiah 9 that the Messiah would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever? Uh, not only that, Jesus, but Isaiah continues in Isaiah 11, where he describes the Messiah as the root of David's father, Jesse. You see, it is that branch spoken of there that will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Come on, Jesus. Um, Jesus, surely you read the words of the prophet Jeremiah who declared in Jeremiah 25, 3-8 that the Lord would raise up for David, a righteous branch, a king who will slay who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Jesus. <laughs> Please tell us that a teacher such as yourself has read the prophet Ezekiel, who wrote in Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24, that the Lord would place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will, will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord will be their have spoken. And Jesus, we could go on. Or we could turn to Micah 5-2, Amos 9-11, Psalm 89. If there's anything we know about the Messiah to come, it is that that he would be a descendant of David. This might have been their line of thinking in the moment. See, the fact that the Messiah was from the line of David is undebatable. Just friends just scour the Old Testament prophets and you will see that nearly all of them mention a king from the line of David that would rule and reign. He would bring comfort to God's people and justice to God's enemies. Now while the prophets wrote significantly about this topic, it was nothing more it was nothing more than further revelation rooted in a promise made several hundred years before the major and minor prophets were even born. The first and most explicit place we see that the Messiah would be a descendant from David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can turn there if you'd like. In, in 2 Samuel 7, you might recall that King David, he desired to build a house for God. Now, keep in mind, at that time in the history of Israel, God dwelt in the tabernacle. And David, as David sat wondering why he was in a palace... While the ark of God dwelt in a humble tent, he wonders, I should should build a house for for the ark. Why why am I a king, but yet under God in this palace, but this ark in the presence of God is out in a tent. It wasn't God's plan, though, for David to build a house, was it? That's what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We know that David's son Solomon would instead build the first temple that God would dwell in. However, in spite of God turning down David's offer to build him a house, God makes one of the most glorious and important promises in the entire Bible. In 2nd Samuel chapter 7. In 2nd Samuel 7:12 through 16 we we read this, God's promise to David. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, with your fathers, that means when, when he dies, long after you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you. I, I, I will, I will bring one from one of your descendants, from your bloodline, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Something to look forward to. One who's. One of your descendants, I, I, the Lord God, I am going to establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. This one to come. He wasn't just a descendant of David, was he? He wasn't just a son of David. God tells David, I will be to him a father. He will be to me a, a son. Yes, he would be a son of David, but he would also be a son of who, church? Son of God. When he commits iniquity... a promise that many of the Israelites, especially the religious leaders, they were, they were looking forward to the fulfillment of. Now these are the passages that likely came to mind as Jesus brings up the question about the Christ being the son of David. One can imagine how exciting such a thought was for the Israelites. For one, they would have given anything to have a king at all as Jesus stood there talking to them. As it has been said many times before, the Israelites were occupied by Rome. They were not a sovereign nation at the time. Not only that, but they were only a few generations removed from their ancestors who were in Babylonian captivity because of their disobedience. We remember that from Ezra and Nehemiah. It had been hundreds of years at that point since Israel was a sovereign nation. Not only that, but it had been even longer since Israel had actually had a good king. Even the kings that they had, the last, they were bad kings. Now, we know that the kingdom was divided and both Israel and Judah had a, had a, a mixture of, of good and bad kings. Um, among the, the divided kingdom, we saw some, some very, very, very wicked men, didn't we? You can go back and you can read of those kings later. And because of their sin, God's chosen people perished greatly. We also saw some godly kings who feared the Lord and knew God's law. Because of their righteous leadership, the people and the country flourished. Yet, friends, none of the kings in Israel ever compared to King David, did they? None of them. In fact, there really isn't even a contest You see, while David was a sinful man, he was also a man after God's own heart, as 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us. He ruled in righteousness, and his nation flourished. The people flourished as well. In David's reign, the country was united, wealthy, and powerful. You can read about Israel's many military victories all throughout the book of 2 Samuel under the reign of of David. In fact, 2 Samuel 5.12 says this, And David knew that the Lord has established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. There was something special and unique about David's reign. Never was this more evident than when the ark of the Lord was brought back into Jerusalem during David's reign. Everything was going well. Yes, friends, David was at the top of the list of greatest kings that Israel ever had. And his successful reign lasted for 40 years. Although David was indeed sinful, and the nation paid for his sins at times, overall, when the Israelites thought of Israel and its glory, they thought of the days of David. So, friends, this by and large This is what the Israelites were looking forward to. When they thought of a a king like David, this is what they were looking forward to. They were looking for military conquest, national prominence, economic success, and liberation from their enemies. They were looking for a return to the good old days. So they were eagerly anticipating the day when the son of David would appear on the scene in Israel. And if there was one thing they knew that the Messiah was, it was this. They knew that he was a descendant of David. Yet, friends, was there a very important attribute that the Messiah possessed that was overwhelmingly lost on the Jewish people as a whole? Was he simply the son of David? This is what Jesus seeks to point out in asking such a question. Jesus wasn't implying here that the Messiah couldn't be the son of David. Jesus is making the point that the Christ was far more than simply the son of David. He is also the son of God. And to make that point, Jesus turns to Psalm 110 verse 1 that reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, you might think that, that Psalm 110 was just a, a random psalm that Jesus pulled out of thin air. However, Psalm 110 was significant because it was widely understood as a messianic scripture. It was speaking of, of the Messiah to, to come, and this, this claim, it's, it's undeniable. No scholar is going to argue anything different. No theologian is going to argue anything different. Everybody understood that this was a messianic psalm. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the, in the New Testament because of its description of the Messiah and how it shows Jesus' fulfillment of Psalm 110. One can look at the book of Hebrews alone just to see how extensively the themes of, of Hebrews rely on Psalm 110. Indeed, this was a Messianic psalm, and everybody knew it. And as Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1 here, let's see if we can follow his argumentation, okay? So, 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 so look down at the text, and, and we'll see first that Jesus points out that David is the one writing the psalm. This is important. Jesus points out that, that David is the one writing the psalm. He himself is the author of this Messianic text, And what does King David say? King David, he identifies someone who is speaking. Who is that person? It is the Lord. You see that? David says himself in the book of Psalms, the Lord said, okay, he also identifies someone who the Lord is speaking to. Who is the Lord speaking to? The Lord is speaking to the Lord. However, that isn't the only thing David writes, is it? David, David doesn't just say, the Lord said to the Lord, does he? What does he say? The Lord said to my Lord. See, the, the operative word here that Jesus highlights is my. It was, it was David's Lord. David then gives insight into what the Lord told his Lord. The Lord gave him instructions he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, let's, let's, let's okay, that's the surface level of what he's saying. Let's, let's go a little deeper. See, if, if we looked at this text in Psalm 110, verse 1, if we, if we looked at it in the, in the Hebrew, we would see the first Lord that is spoken of, the, see, the Lord who is, who, who is saying, the Lord, it is, it, is the, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the Lord God. The Lord God said, Two, my Lord, my Lord, this, this, this other word for Lord is not the same word. It's not Yahweh. It is actually the Hebrew word Adonai. The my, Lord, the my Lord spoken of is Adonai, and Adonai is referring to the Messiah. So we can understand the verse is saying, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai, the Messiah. What did Yahweh say to the Messiah? He says this, he says, sit at my right hand. Now this is, this is significant. To, to sit at the, at the right hand of God is to be of, of equal value with God. It is to rule and, and to reign with God. It is to judge as God. You, you don't just simply sit at the right hand of God. It's not like it's not like going to sit on Santa's knee. You just come and sit on Santa's knee and you take a picture. You're not claiming to be Santa. You're not claiming anything more than that. When you actually sit at the right hand of God, it's claiming something that you are equal with God. Plainly said, the Messiah is divine. The Messiah is Lord. The Messiah is God. Amen. And what would the divine Messiah do while sitting at the right hand of Yahweh? He would reign until Yahweh made his enemies a footstool. This means that Yahweh would bring all of the Messiah's enemies to their knees. His enemies' ultimate fate was judgment. They would not succeed, but would receive the wrath of God. After Jesus quotes this famous Messianic psalm, Jesus makes one comment about the text and then asks a question. In light of the text, Jesus highlights that David calls the Messiah Lord. That's his only commentary. He reads it. He says, hey, scribes, did you notice that David called the Messiah Lord? Did you notice that? And then he follows it up with a question for them to answer. Hey, scribes, how is it possible for the Messiah to be both David's son and and David's God seems like a reasonable question. Seems like an astute observation. Now, Luke doesn't give us the the religious leaders' response, but in Matthew twenty two forty six, on the same account, in Matthew, we read, "No one was able to answer him a word; nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question." He shut their mouths. Can you imagine, church, how all of the brightest theological minds that Israel had to offer were sitting there in that moment? Imagine it. These weren't slouches. They weren't immature people. They were the thoroughbreds. It's not like, you know, we're walking into the preschool class and asking them to explain the Trinity. But that's how he made them look. Those that knew the scriptures the best had been stumped by a question about the Messiah that they were supposedly looking out for. Not only that, but they were stumped about one of the most famous messianic passages in all of the Hebrew scriptures. They simply sat there silent and Jesus made them look like fools. Why? Why couldn't they answer the question? Why didn't they see it? Perhaps because the idea of a descendant ruling over their forefather was unthinkable. Such a scenario in that culture was unheard of. Yet, they knew. They knew Isaiah 9-7 that said, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. They held very fast to that reality. They did. They knew the text. But how did they not see Isaiah 9, 6, the verse before that says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or perhaps they, they should have just kept reading in Isaiah until they got to Isaiah chapter 12 verse, verse 2 that says, Behold, God is my salvation. They, they, were, they were looking, supposedly looking, for this Messiah, this one to come from the line of David as a, as a, a salvation of sorts, to rescue them from Rome. But, but as, they, as they go to Isaiah 12, too, who is their salvation? It is God. God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. We could go on and on. We could go to passages like Isaiah 40, among others. But if they properly understood the Old Testament, they would know that the Messiah had to be divine as well. They just missed it. How, friends, how did so many of the religious leaders have such a clear understanding that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but lacked an understanding of the divinity of the Messiah? How? How How's that possible? I think Kent Hughes was spot on when he wrote, the problem with these scribes is that they had studied, they, they had a studied ignorance of God's word and a practiced inability to think beyond rabbinical traditions. They read the word through a political lens that reduced the Messiah to a mere man on the analogy of David. By and large, the majority of Israel at the time did not desire the Lord God. They did not desire God. They desired a political ruler. They didn't desire someone to save them from their sins. They desired someone to save them from Rome. They did not desire to serve and worship the Lord God. They desired to be served and made much of by the nations. They did not seek God's fame and his renown. They sought their own fame and reputation. It was a king they sought, not the Lord. Therefore, When Jesus the Messiah steps into the picture, perfectly fulfilling everything the scriptures said that the Messiah would be, most of Israel misses him. Why? Because the Messiah was poorly defined in their eyes. How was the Messiah defined? As an idol made in their image to fulfill the carnal desires of their heart if they had been seeking reconciliation with God, they would have known that their sin needed to be dealt with. They didn't just need a a hand up or a hand out. They they actually needed perfection. They needed perfect obedience to the law. They needed a miracle. They needed a a serpent crusher. They needed someone like the one spoken of in in Genesis chapter 3. They needed a representative, and a lamb, a goat, or, or a heifer, it, it wouldn't do. It wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't do. They would have known that only a man could represent fallen man. But not only that, they would have known that no man could ever represent man before God and achieve God's righteous standard because of their sin, for each man was born into sin. They would have known, they should, they would have known that. Therefore, man's representative also must be divine, for only God alone can satisfy the wrath of God. They would have also known that this representative had to be from the line of David, because the scriptures told them so. If they were looking, if, friends, if they were looking for righteousness, they would have found it. They would have found it in Christ. If they were looking for the type of peace that this world can't offer, They would have found it. They would have found it in Christ. If they were looking for holiness, they would have found it. They would have found it in Christ. If they were mourning, truly mourning and broken over their sin and looking for comfort, they would have found it. You know where they would have found it? In Christ. If they were looking for mercy, they would have found it. And If they were looking for God, they would have stared Him in the face in Christ Jesus they weren't looking for any of these things. This is not what they were looking for. Therefore, the Messiah would do them no good. Why would they look for such a man? You see, Jesus certainly here in bringing out Psalm 110, he wasn't playing tricks on them. In Jeremiah 29.3, God promises his people, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jesus reiterates the same sentiment in Matthew 7.7 7, when speaking of seeking God, he says, Seek and you will find. If they desired the Messiah that God had promised, friends, they would have found him. They would have saw him as he was. You see, they were looking for someone to remove earthly problems, not their sin. They were gold diggers looking for a sugar daddy. Not faithful servants joyfully desiring to see and know and worship and serve their God. Now we might come down hard on the Israelites here. Might look at them and we might come down hard on the religious leaders. You know, we, we can see that they were too focused on the things of this world and missed out on what God truly had for them in Christ Jesus. Yet we can be guilty of the same idolatry that they were, can't we, church? Consider your life for a moment. Consider your life. Contemplate, meditate on this. What has been the thing that has brought you the most anxiety lately? For the Israelites at that time, it was certainly Rome and all that Rome brought. Consider your life. What has been the thing that has brought you the most anxiety? What, What have been the things that have brought about sadness, depression, or, or even just simply the things that have, that have captivated your heart the most. Like, I'm fine, but, but I'm obsessed with this. Consider it. Perhaps it is work. Perhaps it is your marriage. Perhaps it's money. Perhaps it's your health. It, it, honestly, it, it could be anything. Isn't it amazing how in times of stress, sadness, anxiety that we would give anything just just to ease the burdens that we have i just want the burdens ease that's all i care about i'm so focused on it isn't it isn't it easy to get overly fixated about what the lord should do for you rather than focusing on who he is and giving him the glory that he deserves Yet, how we respond in these hard moments says a whole lot about what we believe about God, doesn't it? In these moments, if we're honest, we aren't always concerned with how we are honoring God with our hearts and pursuits, but whether or not God is giving us things that he never promised us in the first place. Friends, God never promised us a perfect marriage. God never promised us financial success. God never promised us a perfect church. God never promised us perfect kids. God never promised us perfect health or a long life. God never promised that he would allow us to achieve every ambition that we have in life. Yet, God offers us something so much better than all of these things. This is what God offers If you're looking for a God that offers you all of these other things, you ain't looking at Jesus. And you ain't getting that from the Bible. God offers us something better. In this, he offers us himself. He offers us himself. And when we come to him, and when we seek him with our whole hearts, friends, we will find him. And in him, we find peace. That peace that you're thinking money will satisfy, your marriage, your health, or whatever. You don't find it there. It's not how God works. God doesn't give you peace with money. He gives you peace in Christ. In him, we find hope and joy and freedom. In him, we find righteousness and and sanctification. Why? Why? Because in Christ alone, our biggest need has been met. In Christ alone, our sin has been paid for. And we have been reconciled to God. Friends, this is what God offers. The most glorious gift in all of the world. Christ. Reconciliation with God. Yes, friends, we, we do. If you are in Christ, we have a glorious eternity ahead of us. It is free from sin, suffering, and sadness, and everything. However, that isn't the best thing about eternity. When Paul says to die is gain, he isn't talking about these things. Understand that. He ain't talking about the streets of gold, and he ain't talking about the lack of crying and the new body. I mean, those are great. The biggest gain for eternity future is that we will be face to face with Jesus. We will be reconciled with God forever. Friends, let's not miss out on who God is and what he actually offers. Let's not cheapen it one bit, but revel in his grace and mercy and offering himself. Let us see Jesus a God-man. Let's see his glory. Let's see what he actually offers. And it's better than anything this world has to offer. Point two, we must see Jesus' real enemies as they are. Point one, we must see Jesus as as he really is. But point two, we must see Jesus' real enemies as they are. Now we cannot forget that Christ will sit at the throne until it is time to make his enemies a footstool. This is clearly spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 1, and I believe Christ seeks to highlight that fact in this conversation. As sure as God would provide Christ the Messiah through the line of David, he will also make all of his enemies a footstool. This is a promise. This is a promise. This means this, that God will bring wrath and judgment upon all of his enemies. He will send them to hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Friends, hell is a real place where God will pour out his real wrath for a real eternity on his real enemies. And if this is true, it is imperative to know who Christ's enemies are. This is important. Hell is real. His wrath is real. And eternity is real. Now, most of the Israelites would have thought that the real enemy was Rome. All oh, those footstool people, that, that's, that's Rome. When they thought about the promises found in Psalm 110 verse 1, and Yahweh making his enemies a footstool, they, they, they probably had Rome, they probably had the pagan Gentiles in mind. Yet here I believe Jesus is describing those that will receive the greatest amount of wrath from God. Yes, don't, don't misunderstand me here. If you reject Christ, and you're, if, if you put your hope and trust in anything other than Christ, you are his enemy and you will receive the wrath of God. My, my encouragement to you today would be to turn to Christ, to, to come to him for mercy. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've believed in the past, he will give you mercy. Amen, church? But Jesus is highlighting those that will receive the greatest condemnation the hottest place in hell. And in this context here, hear me, in this context, they weren't Gentiles, they weren't Romans, but they were fellow Israelites. Immediately following Jesus' question, Jesus tells all of his disciples to beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. They're all sitting here, big crowd, disciples, and religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. Can you imagine the tension in the room at that point? As Jesus, is, as Jesus is being so bold here. I love, if you know me, you know I love a good awkward moment. I love awkward moments. I really do. I really do. But this moment had to be really cringe. It really did. Can you imagine it? With all the scribes and religious leaders listening, Jesus says, Hey, beware of the scribes over in the corner here. Yeah, these guys, right? Can, can you just, can you imagine? Don't have anything to do with them. Don't listen to them. Don't get advice from them. Don't take the, don't get their take on scripture. Avoid them at all costs, friends. Beware of these guys over here. It's bold. It's bold. Now, in general, friends, we don't tell people to beware of others unless it is rather serious or in case they pose a danger to those we love. You might see a sign that says, beware of dog. Why? Well, because the dog may bite you. Recently, the ballpark where where our kids play baseball, they sent out an email and they said, Hey, it's come to our attention that, that there was a, a man who was driving a van, and he tried to get two young children to hop in his van. It was a stranger. The, guy, the kids fleed, and, and, the, and, the, and the van drove off, never to be seen again. But they, but they sent out an email saying, hey, beware. Why? Because that's dangerous. And beware is, is we, we, people to be avoided. Here Jesus says, beware of the scribes, not because they pose a physical threat to God's people, Rather, they pose a spiritual danger to God's people. Why? Because of their hypocrisy. Jesus is saying, don't let their brand of religion rub off on you. What does it look like? What does their brand of religion look like? Well, they love to walk around in long robes because it made them look devout and intelligent. They love greetings in the marketplace because it made them feel important. They love places of honor and feast because they craved the praise of man. At the same time, their system of religion pillaged the homes of widows financially with legalistic rules, regulations, and customs found at the temple. All the while, such regulations lined the pockets of the religious leaders while the most destitute only got poor. And not only that, but in order to be seen and praised by man, they gave long, ornate prayers. They did not care about honoring the Lord. They loved the praise of man. I.e., they loved to make much of themselves. Think about this for a second, church. Here, Jesus isn't telling them to beware the sexually immoral, the thieves, the murderers, the rapists. Other places in the Bible tell Christians to avoid such people who profess to be people of God and practice such sin. Yes, amen. Amen. Yet here, Jesus is telling his disciples to avoid people who pray long prayers, wear long robes, love the praise of man, and seek seats of honor at dinner. We'd look at a list like this and think, I mean, it ain't that bad. I mean, is it really that bad to be self-seeking and self-serving? I mean, it ain't, like, why not? It ain't murder. It ain't lying. It ain't robbing a bank. He's think actually immoral. This is what Jesus chooses to focus on here? Really? Jesus looks at such a description, and he thinks this, I hate such wretched sin. That's what God thinks about when he sees man seeking his own glory. He hates it. He despises it. What was so sinful? What was so sinful about these religious leaders? You see, the religious leaders' lives were supposed to be all about pointing people to God. Those that worked in the temple were called to a life of holy pursuits. They they were supposed to take worship seriously. They were to fear the Lord and the Lord only. They were to aid the people as they sought to make sacrifices to a merciful God. Every bit of their work and every bit of their life was to point to God's goodness and God's glory. And instead, their lives were about nothing, nothing, nothing but them. Their lives were about nothing but them. Their lives were about their own glory and their own praise. They had no regard for God. They had no regard for holiness. They simply wanted to look good for man. They were fine going through the outward motions of religion to be respected by man, all the while their hearts were wickedly craving their own glory. There was nothing God hated more than this. There's nothing that God still presently hates more than this. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 20, 47, they, these people, these people mentioned here that fit this bill will receive the greater condemnation. Why? Because of all the people, the religious leaders should have known better. They should have known better. They had the scriptures. They even knew the scriptures, didn't they? They knew of God's standard. They knew of God's character. They knew the consequences of such sin and idolatry, but they hardened their hearts and pursued self-worship. I don't think it's an overstatement to say. Religious people who know their Bibles but continue to worship themselves rather than Christ alone will receive the greatest judgment for all of eternity. I'm going to say it again. Religious people who know their Bibles but continue to worship themselves rather than Christ alone, will receive the greatest judgment for all of eternity. These religious leaders who were outwardly clean but inwardly wicked and existed for self-exaltation rather than God-exaltation were God's enemies and were to be avoided at all costs. Friends, it is very easy to fall prey the same sorts of temptations, isn't it? Isn't it? Self exaltation and the praise of man. We must pray, church, that God would guard us from being self seeking, self exalting idolaters. We can all admit that the praise and respect of man can be such a tempting thing to pursue in this life, can't it? We can all be guilty of this. Friends, when when we consider what we post on Instagram or Facebook, are we seeking edification or are we seeking the praise of man? When we consider how much time, energy, and money we spend on our homes, are we seeking a certain status to be praised by man or are we honestly seeking to praise the Lord? Do we homeschool to honor the Lord and disciple our kids, or to look good to other parents. When it comes to our extracurricular activities, our diets, our workouts, our jobs, our income, our attire, what we say yes to, what we say no to, and everything in between, are we seeking the praise of man or are we seeking the praise of God? Even when we raise our hands in worship, love raising our hands in worship. I don't don't want to discourage anyone from doing it. But when when we raise our hands in worship, is it to praise God or is it to be seen by man? When we seek ministry opportunities and opportunities to serve the church, is it to honor God or is it to be praised by man? I understand this church. Listen, friends, God's goal for you God's goal for you is not your own glory. God's goal for me is not my own glory. That's not his goal. That is not his plan. Yet the pursuit of our own glory can become such a temptation, can't it? How do we fight it? How do we recognize it? How do we fight it? That's what I want to know. Well, First, friends, we must remember that in Christ... In Christ, we have something far better than the approval of man, don't we? We have the approval of God. In Christ, we are friends of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We will rule and reign with Christ forever through no work or effort or merit of our own. We have that in Christ. What else do we really need? What else do we need, friends? We have reconciliation with God. We must. We must be people of prayer community Bible church. We we must pray that God would allow us to treasure these truths. That we are sons and daughters of God. That we have the approval of God. We must treasure these truths to fight off the attacks of temptation of desiring the approval of man. We must pray that God would change our hearts. We must plead with Christ every day for this, friends. Because God hates self-exaltation among Christians. Point three, finally, quickly, we must see those that Jesus delights in for who they are. We must see those that Jesus delights in for who they are. As Jesus is speaking, he, he looks up and he sees the rich bringing their offerings to the temple. Now, One can imagine how generous these offerings were. They were rich. They were probably large. And they, they weren't paying, you know, they didn't pay electronically so you, no one could see it. They were bringing a big old bag full of, full of, full of coins in and, and everybody could see them and everybody could hear the, all the coins hitting the, hitting the bottom of the box. And at the same time, Jesus sees a poor widow who put in two copper coins worth about two days' wages, right? That's all she had. Scripture tells us she gave all that she had. If these two people came to our church, I can tell you who we might be tempted to be the most excited about. I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying this might be true, but we probably would be tempted to be more excited about the big givers. You see, the the big givers allow us to buy sod and playgrounds and AC units and carpet and patios and music equipment and the list goes on. You see, but God isn't necessarily impressed by large financial gifts. It's not. God isn't impressed by the things that we are impressed by. God looks at the heart, church. Here, And Jesus isn't necessarily condemning the rich for their gifts. He's not. But instead is highlighting something unique about the widow's gift. As Jesus sees the widow put her two copper coins in the offering box, Jesus says that her small gift is more. It's greater than any other offering in that box. Why? Why? Because she, although poor, put in all she had to live on, while the rich gave out of their abundance. Here, Jesus isn't making a blatant statement that we must all give the church every dollar we have to live on in order to please Him. I'll release you from that bondage this morning in case you're feeling a little worried about that this morning. Instead, Jesus is highlighting the heart of this widow. Imagine what it took for her To give all that she had to live on. Can you imagine what's going on in her heart? What's going on in her mind? Every dollar she had, she puts in the box. I mean, clearly, she had to trust first that God would provide everything that she needed, that He would deem necessary for her life. She trusted in His sovereignty, that if God didn't provide it, she didn't need it. But second, and more importantly, She desired to please God far more than she desired the things of this world. If she was like the religious leaders mentioned in the previous verses who were overly concerned with everything that the world had to offer, she would never have given everything to the Lord. Never. See, that is the contrast that Jesus is painting here. She loved God above everything else in this world. That's the contrast. She loved God over everything else. His glory was her biggest delight. Even if she gave every dollar she had to the offering box, she still had more than the whole world because she was a child of God. She knew it and she lived like it. Friends, we must understand this. God doesn't delight in external religion. He doesn't. He doesn't delight in flashy gifts. He doesn't delight in fancy prayers. He doesn't delight in simple outward expressions of piety. He delights in simple things. Such as hearts that know him for who he is and love him. That's what brings God joy. That's what the Lord is looking for. He delights in hearts that desire to please him. He delights in hearts that find their worth and their joy and their peace in him. Church, may we seek such heart postures. May we be an encouragement to one another in our conversations in our small groups, as we're doing life together, may, may we encourage one another to pursue such heart postures. May we pray that, that God would do a mighty work in us, church. At times we pray that God would do a mighty work out there, and I, which is good, but I think the, the, the best way that God's going to do a mighty work out there is He first does a mighty work in here. We can't expect the culture to treasure God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're not people that love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need God to do a miracle in this place today. We do. And we pray that Christ would be the biggest delight of our congregation. May his glory, his glory, like the widow, be our biggest pursuit As the widow gave her whole income to God, may we offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice unto God. Not out of guilt, but because we have seen and known the God-man, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his life so that we may live. Let such truths consume our hearts this week as we live for Christ. Amen.